So our scripture reading today is from Psalms 11 and Psalm 146, verse 5 through 9. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When their foundations are being destroyed, what can just people do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines those who are just, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is just. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Psalm 146, verse five through nine. Blessed are those whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who are just. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am always taken at every child dedication with that uh, phrase that we say, we promise uh, that we will work to make society a better place for our children to live in. That, that's a huge commitment. And it's, it's also something that reminds us that God is at work in this world and will continue to be at work in this world until society truly is a perfectly good place uh, for, uh, for all people to live in. But, but we're not there yet. Uh, and that longing is, is what the Bible calls justice. And I think every human being has a deep longing for it. Though, as some of you have heard in my series in the book of Psalms, that my topic today is the heart cry for justice, I have had some people come and say, I don't really have much of a heart cry from that, for that, because I hear way too much about that, and sometimes it just makes me angry. In fact, there was one news commentator, you know, who, who said, if you hear your pastor say justice, run out of church. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because I'm going to try to convince you that every day of your life, you have a heart cry for justice. All right, see if I can do it. I'm going to illustrate this. I, um, Wednesday, knowing I'm going to talk to you about this, uh, our son-in-law, Michael, came in from Chicago. He loves baseball, as I do. And so I was able to get tickets. Chris and, and Michael and I went to the uh, Dodger-Giants game last Wednesday night. And I was able to get seats just directly behind home plate, not in the really expensive seats. I, your pastor can't afford that. I've got to tell you that. But still, right there behind home plate. And more than any time in my life, I was able to watch a major league umpire and see whether I thought the calls were good calls. All right, if any of you watch that and you're big baseball fans, you know that Kento Maeda was pitching. And for the first three or four batters, there was not a single called strike, though I was convinced that many of those balls were over the plate. Um, 
In case you're not a baseball fan, I'm going to show you this illustration just so you can get this thing. All right, that's from MLB.com. The, the, the strike zone is right there. You see it, the, 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 the dark section. If the ball goes there, it's supposed to be a strike. Okay, just to let you know. If it's outside, number three there, that's not a strike. All right, so, so pitch after pitch, first couple of guys walked. I, I turned to Chris and I said, oh, this umpire has a small strike zone. We're going to have a lot of base runners tonight. Baseball fans, you know what I'm talking about. All right, finally, we got through the end of the top of the first, and the Dodgers came up to bat. And it was Howie Kendrick coming up to hit. And on the very first pitch that came to him, from my perspective, that, that pitch was both high and outside the strike zone. And of course, the umpire said, strike. Knowing I was talking to you today, everything inside of me wanted to scream out, injustice. <laughs> Don't you know that the book of Proverbs tells you never to have unequal measurements and standards? That was not a strike. Now, what would the umpire have said to me? Uh, he would have said, listen, in baseball, I'm the authority here. It's not a strike till I call it a strike. And if I call it a strike, it's a strike. And you know, in baseball, you can't, you can't even complain about balls and strikes. You get thrown out of the game. And yet what happens if the one who has authority to determine what is the right strike and what is the ball has unequal measurements and standards? What happens? Baseball fans, what do we, or any sport fan, everybody gets angry. We, we start screaming out injustice. Uh, now to the Bible. <laughs> Ever since Genesis 3, if you don't know the Bible, that's when everything was right. Relationships with God and with one another, everything in the ecology was right. And when people sinned, everything started going wrong. Ever since that time, there is nothing in our world that is perfectly just, perfectly right. And you've all experienced it, and you experience this sometimes in a small way and sometimes in a great way every day of your life. Um, students, you know, go to university, you write a paper, uh, the person beside you writes a paper that you think is very mediocre, and yet that person's father is the biggest donor to the university, and that person gets an A, and you write a much better paper, and you get a C. What do you say? That's unjust. That's unfair. That's not right. Uh, in our world, and we hear it all the time, if, if a man and a woman uh, both are doing the same job, have the same credentials, um, uh, have, have the same experience and yet the man gets paid significantly more than the woman as stats show so much what, what do people say when you look at that you know you say that's, that's unjust that is wrong and I'll tell you in greater and smaller ways all around the world those things happen every day and it makes people really angry we see it, whoever determines what the standards are when shootings happen in places like happened in Tulsa or in Charlotte or anywhere else, people who look at that and say, well, that's not the same standard applied to, to, to my group as to this group, that is unjust. You can see that's where the rioting takes place. Are you feeling this? This, this is not a small issue that your pastor is trying to, to walk into today. 
And so the question always comes up when you have something like this that is in every society, that is happening in our world, um, and you come to church, you ask the question, does the Bible say anything about this? Or is it just irrelevant to the real life issues that you and I face every day? Does the Bible say anything about justice? It is filled with it. It is filled with it. And so you know that today, when I walk into this topic, a heart cry that every human being has, that things will be right, and that things that seem unfair and wrong to us will be made right, that evils will be judged and goodness will be rewarded, is the longing of every human heart. We cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord, come quickly, Lord, to make everything right. So today we're going to look at one little psalm. You can't say everything about this big topic today, but I'm going to tell you where it all starts. It's Psalm 11. You heard Jonathan read it for us so well with that great voice. I have to have him read uh, often. As he read it, I know sometimes when you listen to the Bible being read, it kind of just goes right through your ear. Could you relate to it? Do you realize that David, who wrote this, was going through a really hard time in his life. And what I see in this little psalm is simply the starting point, one worthy of thinking about a lot. When things seem unfair to you, where do you start to be able to live in a way that honors God? And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The Bible says much more than I can say to you about this, but I want to talk about that part of it. As we start, again, because I'm I'm sure that many are, are... fairly new to the Bible, most of us aren't. But let me give you just a a biblical primer on what biblical justice is about. It's different from the way the world often talks about it. So here we go, just so quickly. The definition, when I talk to you about justice, justice in the Bible is a condition in which everything, everywhere, is right in every way. And I'll add for everyone. Uh, There are different words used in the Bible uh, and, uh, no, there are just central words used in the Bible. We translate them in different ways. Uh, there's a word in the Old Testament that means justice. There's a word in the New Testament that means justice. Sometimes you, you miss them in the, when you read the Bible in our English versions. Sometimes the word for justice is translated righteousness. Almost every time you see that word, it, it, it is the word for, for justice. And when you think of righteousness, what do you think of? Don't you think about those things in, in your life or my life that are not right with God personally and that have to be confessed and be made right and forgiven? That, that's what we usually think of, personal things. And that is a part of justice. God has pledged that he'll find a way to make all of us right. Hallelujah. But that's not all that justice is about. So, sometimes the word is translated upright. And when we hear that word upright, you think it must be like the pastor who wears a suit to church. You know, proper... That may be a part of justice, but that's probably not what it's about at all. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll hear it discussed in the Bible in terms of, of helping those who are homeless and, and, and hungry and are blind and imprisoned and oppressed. And that's a part of justice too, those things that happen in terms of our, our society. Let me just tell you, I, I think about, I, I call it big J justice. When, when the Bible talks about things being made right, It means everything becoming the way that it's supposed to be. I think I've written it for you here. Justice in the Bible is ultimately about everything that God is in control of. Which is everything. Yeah, which is? Everything everything that God is... 
you're a little better than nine o'clock. You're still, you know, not quite as much with me as I want, but still, that's okay. Everything being right, your whole world, this whole world being without sin, without flaw, without failure. Now we have to come to the reality. There's nothing in this world that is perfectly right, except one thing, and that is God. God alone is just. Um, In fact, the Bible declares that all the time. Uh, Jeremiah, especially in Jeremiah 23, will simply declare, God, your name is justice. So, So it's so different from that umpire that I thought my objective, unbiased way. I thought his, his, his standard was wrong. Every standard of God is exactly right. So the reality is there's nothing about you and me that is yet all that it should be. Can I have a witness? So if you've come today and you have things in your life and you say, how can I sit here with all these perfect people? No, no, no. <laughs> and there's nothing in all of the world. Sin has affected everything. The ecology, that's why things get out of sync in the whole world. Romans 8 um, The whole creation, all of creation, is longing for God to finish this work, for his children to be revealed, for us to get involved in his work, and for everything to be made right, ending with Maranatha, come and do it soon. That brings me to the promise. The God who's made the world has promised to establish in this world a kingdom of justice where everything is right, a time and place where everything he has created reflect everything that he is. It will glorify, glorify him. That's why I was so taken with this promise we make. We'll work to do what God is really promising he's going to do to make society a better place for people to live in. In Romans 14, 17, when, when that kingdom of God is completed, it is going to be a kingdom of peace, everything reconciled, everything healed, and justice, everything right. Do you ever think about that? That's what God has promised to do in us and through us and in his world. Wrong things being called out, forgiveness being given, everything being made right. It's what Jesus came to begin. And and God promises that what he started in Jesus, he will bring to completion. Hallelujah. Now, the application of this, this is where our world often gets messed up, and sometimes it even gets into the church. So that when you think about this word justice, when you hear anybody talking about it, you've got to think about it on both levels of personal as well as corporate. There is personal and individual uh, justice that's being done. Our lives are not what they should be. God loves us anyway. We have sin in our lives. It needs to be confessed and forgiven. Where will we find forgiveness? Jesus gave his life, the sinless one, for the sinful. That's the gospel message, isn't it? And when we receive him, he forgives us of our sin and he gives us his spirit and is at work in us. The power of his spirit within the context of his people. And he will continue to work until he's completed his work in you and me and you and I will be complete in Christ. Oh, this is a great message. I I wish you liked it as well as I do, but... uh, And this justice is not just for me and not just for you. It is for all that God has made because God loves this world. It is global and corporate. All the effects of sin in our world are going to be made right. 
These wrongs that we sometimes see in our city that Nancy was talking about that we work on, of kids not being able to make it through school, of, of children and families having to sleep on the streets with no homes, of people who, even if they got themselves into this addiction, wanting to find freedom from the addictions that they are in and not being able to find it. He says there is freedom in Christ. The, the, the issues of broken relationships in our families and in our marriages, issues in which we, we look and say, there are some laws that seem to be unjustly applied here or there. Everything is going to be made right. God will reign. Uh, now, the means by which he's going to get us from here to there is that he is going to be involved in this world. God is here and with us. His spirit is at work. But one of the things that's so clear is that God does so much of his work through you and me he does his work in us, and as he makes us just, complete, he sends us out into the world to be engaged in doing acts of reconciliation that lead to justice. I guess the clearest text, it's all over the Bible, one of the clearest texts is a passage that's sometimes used for our presidential inaugurations. It's Micah 6.8. Some people don't even know uh, that it's from the Bible. Uh, God has shown us what is good. And what is good? To act with justice, to do justice, the phrase really says, to love mercy, and always, whatever we do, to walk humbly with God right beside us, to walk humbly with God. And if you read the verses that go on before that, God takes out three places in history where he does justice where his people had walked away from him and, and, and he didn't give up on them and he drew them back again. You can read that passage, three of these episodes where God was at work bringing them back to him, bringing things back together even though they'd walked away from him. And at the end, these religious leaders there among his own people said, big deal, what are we supposed to do about it? What does God want us to do? Offer our children? Because they'd been using their authority not to bring about peace and justice but just for themselves. And so that's when he then says, I've already shown you <laughs> throughout all of history what is good. And this is what I require of you. When you've been put in a place where you have resources, do justice. Counteract the effects of evil in this world that I love. And that's going to mean that you have to love to show mercy. You just got to love to forgive people, even if they've wronged you. How much the way that God forgave us and the only way possibly to do that is walk day by day in the midst of this imperfect world humbly with God. So it's with all of that in mind that we come back to this little psalm, Psalm 11, to see how this played out in the life of one man, King David. And I've called it a short song to remind us that God is just and God is God. So the setting. David had trouble his whole life. <laughs> There were unjust things that happened to him uh, when he was a young man trying to treat King Saul well and the king was after him trying to kill him. They happened to him when he was a middle-aged man when his own son Absalom <laughs> turned against him and a lot of his people against his own father uh, and, and what treated him unjustly had to flee. It happened when he was an old man. <laughs> When Adonijah, his, another son, tried to take over the kingdom, took over the military leader, Joab took over the spiritual leader and turned them all against him. So it just seemed like David had dealt with injustice his whole life. I, when, when was this psalm written? I don't know. 
But it was written in one of those times. I think it was, was when one of his sons turned against him. So that's the problem. You've got to imagine, what does David do when the whole world is against him and he starts with God? So here it is, the person of faith knows that the only perfect, just, invulnerable refuge in this world is God. So when everything, when everything seemed to be wrong around him, notice that opening phrase. In the Lord, I take refuge. What do you think of that? This is not all that he did. I just want to tell you, that's not all that he did. But this is where he starts. The, the injustices in his life were persistent. They seem to never end. But this is also where he always started. Remembering that God is God and that God is there. In the Lord is the place that I find refuge. That brings us to the second part of verse 1. I call it the bad advice. And I still hear this kind of advice around us when everything seems to be going wrong in this world. Verses 1b to 3. David, take matters into your own hand. Flee like a bird, David, is the thing that you see here. Uh, so essentially what he's being told is this. David, you can talk all this religious stuff that you want, but God just never seems to help you. Same kind of injustice are still here. And right now, the same things that have happened. If you go out, the very people that you think are going to protect you are going to have arrows in their hand. They're going to come out of the darkness. They're going to shoot you. Sounds a lot like what people say in our world. Any, anybody know that? That's, that's what it says right there in that psalm. David, that's going to happen. The only thing you can do, David, is take matters into your own hand. And the image that he uses is you've got to flee out of here like a bird. I love the imagery. And it makes a point that I really want you to listen to carefully. Um, you and I in California, if you've ever been down to the beach, you can understand this imagery. You ever been there where, especially if you have a dog, uh, you'll have all these dog, the, uh, birds out there on the beach. And they don't see you coming, and suddenly your dog goes tearing toward, what, tearing toward them. What, what do the birds do? They just scatter mindlessly, wildly. There's no hope for anything. That's, that's what they do. And I have a picture of it here just to get you to have a feeling of that. It often happens in a meadow, too. I've had that happen so many times when I took walks in West Virginia. The birds just would come flying out of, out of the place. The reason why I like that metaphor is that the point that it's making is not that if there is violence coming toward you, David, just take refuge in God and let it happen. That's not what David did. He often left. He, he, he often made some decisions to get out of that place of violence. And I, you, you know why I'm making this point to you, don't you? Because when violence is happening to you, when violence is in the situation, in your home, or wherever that may be, the Bible never says to you, well, just stay there and trust God and let them do whatever they want. What it is saying is this, never just panic and take matters into your own hands thinking that there is no help whatsoever. What David did in that moment, it was intentionally stop and say, in the midst of this thing that is happening, Lord, you are here and in you I take refuge. I'll tell you, when injustice has happened and everybody knows that they are happening to us, as everybody around David knew they were happening to him, the few who remained faithful to him would even say, I don't know, verse 3, David, the foundations are crumbling around here. Doesn't that sound like people, what people say about our nation? David, uh, the political uh, structures are crumbling here. You're going to have to give up your kingdom. 
David, the very security and, and law enforcement of our country are, are failing because your, your people who are supposed to head that up have turned against you. David, the spiritual resources are against you because your own priests and, and, and religious leaders, your mentors, have turned against you. You don't have anybody to trust. The only thing you can do is trust yourself. Run to the hills. You've got to take matters into your own hands. Uh, the same kind of thing is sometimes said in other places in the Bible. David, all this stuff is happening. You still have some cloud as king. You need to take revenge yourself against those who do evildoers. And uh, in that, there is such a biblical principle that I think I've talked to you about before, but it just is driven home by this text, is that uh, God plants places, places of authority in our world that are supposed to bring about justice, uh, in our families, parents, that's what we're supposed to do. When, when our kids are fighting with one another, you shouldn't have uneven standards. You know, doesn't that make your kids mad if they think you're treating one of the kids more <laughs> in a different way than others? Is my family the only one where that happens? <laughs> in, in the church, it's supposed to be elders. We're supposed to watch out, and when things are going wrong in the church and people mistreating one another, we're supposed to be able to engage in discipline and step into that situation. In, the, in our nation, it's supposed to be the courts, sometimes law enforcement and so forth. So that God plants those. those. We need those authorities, but none of us are perfect in those places. And so when, when, that, when those things are not fulfilling their responsibility perfectly, the, the, the natural thing we think we have to do is, I've got to take this matter into my own hands. I'm telling you, David had tried to do this in his life. There is one great story in the Bible. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. David had been on the run. He had done a really good deed for a man named Nabal. And then later he needed Nabal to help him, and Nabal wouldn't. Now, you've got to remember, David wrote songs and played a harp, but, but everybody knows he was a warrior's warrior. He, he was what anybody would have called a man's man. And, and when, when the guy that he had helped before comes back and betrays him, you know he was angry. And he wanted to take revenge into his own hands. Do you know the story? Do you know what? Nabal is the one who did this. Do you know what that name means in Hebrew? It means fool. And he lived up to his name. I, I'm just, I don't know what parent would name their child fool, but, 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 but they raised one. They, they, they raised one in this situation. But when David was going to go and kill Nabal himself, uh, Nabal's wonderful wise, beautiful wife, Abigail, comes up and he says, she reminds David of what he'd already known, that there is a principle that was there in the scripture before David. It has continued on into the New Testament even now, and here it is. God declares, do not take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. This is both in Deuteronomy 32 and Romans 12. Because God says... If the places that I have placed to bring about justice don't, it is mine to avenge. And I will repay, declares the Lord. Well, well, David knew that taking revenge wasn't the thing that any godly person should do. Revenge is always a short-term sort of solution to any problem. But David was angry as we get to be angry, and he was going to do it anyway. And Abigail comes and pleads with him. You can read it. It is a great story. And at the end, it's almost like a Hallmark movie. It all works out, and he gets the girl, and he didn't kill Nabal. That happened because of Nabal's own foolery. 
Uh, and, and at the end, David comes to Abigail, and I love it. He says to her, Bless, may you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from taking revenge with my own hand. I'll tell you, when everything seems to be going wrong around you and you say it's been happening my whole life, my parents' life, my grandparents' life, and, and sometimes you, you think I, I've got to take this into my own hands somehow when you want to lash out or when you want to be tempted to think God isn't here, the only hope for me is just to get out of here and leave my responsibilities. David turns and says, no. There is a better way to go. And you just got to see if you believe him. And the starting point, he says, in times of injustice, verses four to six, and that is to take time to remember that God is still God. Look at what he, the way he puts it. They say, oh, all the foundations are shaking. It's all falling apart. No hope. And he says, no. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. And the Lord sees. These are profound verses. Verses four to six. Will you mark them? They kind of walk us through the first steps you and I are to take when injustice is all around us. Can I show it to you? Number one, remember that whatever happens, God is with you. The Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, th that phrase means God is dwelling right here. He's not just out there. He is right here. So that like in Psalm 46, so that the God who is right here is your refuge and your strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble so that you never have to be afraid. Number two, remember that the God who is with you is in control of everything. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. He's not just here. He is in control of all. In other words, when you think about God, he's not up there sort of wringing his hands saying, oh, look at that. I wish I could help my man David somehow, but I just don't have any ability to help him. Absolutely not. God is God. What seems to be hopeless for us is not hopeless for God. He is on his throne. But still, sometimes those difficulties are there. Three, that God uses trouble in this world to further his work in us and in his world. It's a consistent message also, the Bible, that sometimes when that trouble comes, it will either drive you away from God or right into his arms. And you see that here. The Lord tests the just. That, that language of trouble being a test that bothers some people, it really shouldn't. Uh, because it's really saying something that the Bible always says. God is in control of everything. And he has always found ways to take even the most difficult things that happen and turn them into something he uses for his greatest good. I mean, the heart of our message, the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest injustice in the world, was the place where he bore our sins and offers us the opportunity to be made just, to be made right with God, right? And, and, and uh, there's a story in the Old Testament, in, the, in Genesis chapter 50, of this man named Joseph. He was, he was, uh, his brothers were jealous of him. So do you remember they threw him down in a pit and then they sold him into slavery? I mean, wouldn't you say this is unfair, unjust? Anybody else think it might be? <laughs> 
And yet, when he got there to Egypt, amazingly, God was still there. God knew what he was doing, even sending him to Egypt. And that very problem, that trouble, is what sent him there to Egypt. So that when these same brothers ended up having no food, and the only place that had any food was in Egypt, they came. And guess who's the one that they met? In charge of distributing the food, it was the same Joseph. Not bitter anymore, but having learned this lesson. And he says this to them, and it is so profound. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done. The saving of many lives. (laughs) Now, this test language doesn't sound like that that's what it's about, but that's exactly what it's all about. Teachers, good tests are good for your students. Any, any teacher agree with me there? Bad tests are not good. Good tests help your student actually to know what he or she has learned or whether they don't know it. Help them to know where they can apply themselves. It has a greater good. A test isn't just some random thing. It has the good of wanting to further knowledge in your student. And that's what's being said here. A test helps David to see where he is with God and whether he really has God as his God or other things that may be taken away from him. So I want you to remember this. If things are happening that seem to be unjust, God is still God and there's a purpose for what he is doing. Trust him and someday you'll see it. And finally, when you just are really mad and say, but that is a real evil and and it looks like that person is going to get by with it. No, God says, I will do my job. I will judge evil. Look again, verses five and six. The wicked, those who love violence, God hates with a passion. So here's what he will do. On the wicked, he will, rain, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. God will send a scorching wind. That will be their lot. Uh, that God will deal justice does not mean that we don't speak out against injustice. The Bible's clear about that in many other places. Uh, the, the, the fact that the Bible says God is going to be the one who judges it and let him do his job doesn't mean that you and I don't go and work against the evils of sin and what it's done to people and to this world. No, 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 it doesn't say that. But it never tells us that we take matters into our own hands. God will make sure that evil is judged and that goodness is rewarded. All right, I, this is one of those places where I can almost feel us getting stuck. So I was with, we had ministry council retreat. So I pulled uh, Kevin Williams, some of you know Kevin, to the side. I pulled Ashley Pally to, to the side and I said, how can I illustrate this so that people will really understand it? And they, they gave me the story that to me is maybe the greatest uh, example of this being lived out in my lifetime. And it was just a little over a year ago down in Charleston, South Carolina, when some of our brothers and sisters were having a um, prayer meeting at, at the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And you know what happened, don't you? Uh, a, a man came in. His name is Dylan Roof. Unjustly just pulled out a gun and shot them all dead. Any of you think that that's not right? Any, any of you think that's not right? How does a Christian handle these kinds of things? The enormity of that injustice. 
As I, as, as I watched my brothers and sisters in Christ, the family members of those who were shot, showing up at the court hearing for Mr. Roof, I was so amazed when one family member after another turned to him and offered him the forgiveness of Christ. I was especially taken. I have a picture of the, did you get a picture of the, the, uh, the church? You see that it wasn't as if they ignored that injustices were happening. They were just trying to figure out how do we live representing God in the midst of these kinds of injustices. I especially loved what Nadine Collier, and I have her picture up here. I, I just love it. Her 70-year-old mother had been shot down. And I think she was the last one that she turned to Mr. Roof. And she said to him, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. Who, who does such a thing? Who does such a thing? Only the one who has heard God... Jesus turned to us and say, I know where you have fallen short. I know where you have sinned. But I gave my life out of love for you. Trust me and I forgive you. So that we can be made right and just before God. And what he does when we have experienced that, the only response is that we go and do justice in his name. Is that clear? Which brings me to the very last point. It's there in verse 7. The call to act as we trust. That God does this kind of justice. He calls us to do it too. And the phrase there in verse 7, the Lord is just. He loves deeds of justice. So I've got a question for you. When it says God loves deeds of justice, does it mean that he loves to do them? Or does he love it when you and I do them? You want to you fight about it uh, here? <laughs> it almost certainly is both, right? He loves to take the broken things in this world and forgive them to make them new. He loves it when we engage in his work. It glorifies him. So what does that look like? That's a whole other sermon, and, and you don't have time for me to do that. So I'll give you a couple of verses. Uh, it means speaking out when you and I have a voice, for those who don't have a voice and are being ignored. Proverbs 31, verse 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Use your voice to speak up for the rights of those who are destitute. If we see people unborn, particular people groups, who are not experiencing the same kind of calls. <laughs> Remember my baseball <laughs> illustration. Does not seem right. We are supposed to use our voices to speak up, not to leave them alone. And just as much, we are to act as God acts. So I'm going to read for you what Jonathan read better than I can read for you. Psalm 146. The Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. He's the maker of the sea and everything in them. So how does this God who made everything use his power? I'll read this and you think about it. He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. 
The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the Lord loves those who are just. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. That's what our God loves to do. That's why there's hope for us. That's what God does. And often, if I read my Bible right, he wants to do his things through us as his people. Uh, I believe these texts are a call to each one of us to join God in making society for our children a better place to live. To join him in giving witness to Jesus as the only one who can bring us back to God and to going out in his name and saying there is hope in spite of all the effects of evil that are throughout our world. And I think that's what he's called you to. And what he's called you and me to is a life that when we embrace it, just like in Charleston, South Carolina, will bring glory to his name. People will see us and they will see what God is like. May it happen to his glory. Amen. Amen. May it be so.